Well, from preschool through first grade, I attended a small school that once stood in Bailey's Crossroads called Fairfax Brewster. And the principal was a man named Mr. Reese. And I was terrified of Mr. Reese. Everyone was terrified of Mr. Reese. Uh, Maybe it's just because I was so young and so small when I attended the school, but my enduring memory of Mr. Reese with his polyester suits and his permanent scowl is his intimidating presence. And we children would just keep our heads down when we passed him in the hallways. And the worst thing that could happen to you at Fairfax Brewster was being sent to Mr. Reese's office. Now, I also attended camp, summer camp at Fairfax Brewster. On one occasion, a counselor was talking to all the campers, and he asked us to be quiet on several occasions. And a friend kept trying to talk to me when I turned to him and and told him to be quiet. And just at that moment, the counselor caught me talking to my friend. And he called me out, and he embarrassed me in front of the whole camp. I turned bright red. And to add insult to injury... He sent me to Mr. Reese's office, and I made quite the scene. I burst into tears. I begged not to go, but the damage and injustice, I might add, was done. And I became filled with fear of facing the most intimidating man I had ever met. And as I sat outside of his office waiting to see him, I was scared to death of what might happen to me, crying trembling in fear until his secretary gave good news. Mr. Reese was out of the office that day and he wouldn't be back. (laughs) I was free to go. I had survived and I was committed never going back to Mr. Reese's office ever again. Now, have you ever trembled in someone's presence for good reasons or bad? Perhaps it was because of their authority, like Mr. Reese, what they could do to you. Perhaps it was because of their fame. I'm not a very starstruck person, but even I've gotten a little knock-kneed in the presence of celebrity. Or maybe it was because of their size, or their strength, or their physical power. Well, no matter the reason, if you've ever trembled in the presence of another like I have, I think it provides just a small glimpse into what the people of Israel must have felt when God appeared to them at Mount Sinai, as recorded in our passage for this morning, Exodus 19, verses 8 through 25. We're approaching the end of our study in the first 20 chapters of Exodus, and in this penultimate chapter of our study, Yahweh, the one true God, summons his people to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where he intends to give them his law and establish a covenant with them to formalize the relationship that already exists between them. And the Lord appears to them in such dramatic fashion that it highlights three realities of their relationship. First, Israel was a limited people. Limited by their humanity and limited by their sin and under the limits given to them by their God. Second, Yahweh was and is and always will be a holy God. Awesome and terrifying in all his power and authority and glory and majesty. And this seeming insurmountable gap between a holy God and his limited creatures highlights the need 
for a third reality in the relationship, and that is a suitable mediator. Moses has been serving as an intermediary between God and Israel ever since God first called him from the burning bush to lead his people to freedom. And Moses has already ascended Mount Sinai once in this chapter, the portion we considered together last week. And today we see how Moses makes two more trips up and down the mountain as he delivers messages back and forth between God and the people of Israel. A limited people, a holy God, and a suitable mediator. These three realities, they form the outline of our passage. So let's start by considering the limits on Israel as we look at the last part of verse 8 where we finished last week together. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. After his first trip up and down the mountain, Moses heads back up to report the people's response to the Lord. And the words that Moses reports are the pledge of the people from the first part of verse 8. And what they had said was, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They're pledging complete loyalty to God. They promise to obey his voice and keep his covenant. And their gratitude for their freedom from the Egyptians has translated into a commitment to him. And they're making this promise. They're agreeing to something before they even know what it is. And they soon find out as the Lord gives Moses further instructions starting in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And so God promises an appearance, a visitation in a cloud. And this term for cloud is used over 50 times in the Old Testament to describe a cloud in which God appears to his people. And this even includes the pillar of cloud that he's already used to lead Israel out of Egypt. And his purpose for appearing in this manner is so that the people hear God speaking to Moses and thus believe him and the messages that he delivers to them on God's behalf. Now, the fact that the Lord is the one who is setting the agenda and establishing the parameters and giving the instructions drive this point even further because he is the one who is setting the limits on their impending encounter. Look at the second half of verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So in three days, the Lord will come to the mountain to establish his covenant with Israel. But before he does, the people must first consecrate themselves. Consecrate comes from the root for holy or set apart. These are a holy people who are preparing to hear from their holy God. And the Lord establishes limits for their preparations. And the first limit relates to what the people can wear when he, when, the, when he comes. They must be set apart by appropriate apparel. They must be consecrated by clean clothes. And he doesn't explain why, only to do it. Now this isn't too hard for us to grasp, this request that he makes. Even in our more casual society, clothes still convey the intentions of the wearers. Uniforms give us an idea of what people do. A bridal gown tells us that someone is getting married. And when someone's wearing dress clothes on the top and pajamas on the bottom, we know they're getting ready for a Zoom call. <laughs> and so it is with the clean clothes of the Israelites. They are preparing to meet God in accordance with his instructions. And the instructions are consecrated clothes. 
The second limit that the Lord establishes is an actual boundary at the base of Mount Sinai in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now, if anyone didn't think this was serious based on the clothing command, they would have started to get a pretty good idea by the time Moses spoke these words. Now, the word for limit comes from the root to twist like a rope. He's referring to an actual physical boundary or barrier to keep anyone from touching the mountain. Whether they actually built a rope or put up a rope, we don't know. But he's just being really clear that there is a line. Why? Well, again, he doesn't say. We can assume that it has something to do with his holiness. But all he reveals is that there will be a penalty for those who disregard or break the limit, whether person or animal. Don't even touch this this, pers- this perpetrator, that the penalty is death by either arrow or stone. And by including animals with people in the punishment, he seems to be drawing a definite distinction between himself as creator and his creatures. Now, I, I, just as an aside, when I read this as a dad of young children, I was thinking, what were the parents of toddlers thinking about this boundary? About having to keep children from running past it and touching the mountain or they'll be stoned or shot. It, it's scary. It's intimidating. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And at the sound of the long trumpet blast, the the people are instructed to move from their camp all the way up to the established limit or boundary at the base of the mountain. And in verse 14, Moses heads back down the mountain to deliver these instructions to the people of Israel. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Moses tells the people what to do. And they obey just as they said they would. And they consecrate their clothes by washing them. Notice that Moses includes one more limit here, likely from the Lord's instructions. And do not go near a woman. Israel was a patriarchal society, so perhaps he's addressing the men directly here. But the emphasis here, for men and women alike, is to abstain from physical intimacy. This is not because intimacy between a husband and wife is sinful, but simply because the Lord was establishing limit after limit for his people as they prepared themselves to gather at the base of his mountain. Again, he doesn't provide the reason for this limit. But I think it's similar to the instructions that Paul gives to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 where he writes to husbands and wives, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Uh, Both of these instances are similar. In both cases, there's a spiritual purpose for their abstinence. Now you might be wondering, what's the purpose for all these limits that God establishes for the people's preparations? Why does he give all these different instructions? What's the the purpose behind them? Well, the Lord, by the very fact that he's the sovereign God who created the universe and he upholds it by the word of his power, is the one who establishes its limits, all the limits. We even see this starting with creation. Proverbs 8.29 tells us that he, referring to the Lord, assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. And then after placing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, the Lord provided another limit, this one with a penalty of death as well. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was a single limit established by God that Adam and Eve transgressed. And with their sin and the fall of humanity came not only the surety of death, but also a separation, a break in the intimacy of fellowship that they had once enjoyed with God. And the Lord banishes them from the garden and he establishes a limit to where they can go. Because of their sin, they must leave the place that was once marked by close communion with God. And so the people of Israel are a limited people. They're limited in their humanity as creatures. And they're limited also as Adam and Eve's children by their sin, which prevents them from having the free and unfettered relationship with a holy God that their first parents once enjoyed prior to the fall. Now the simple truth as we consider this is that we don't like limits, do we? When I was little, uh, our family took a trip. I was probably a toddler. Our, our family took a trip uh, to Roosevelt Island. And as we walked around the island, the adults kept telling me over and over again, now, Matthew, don't touch that. That's poison ivy. Matthew, don't touch that. That's poison ivy. Matthew, don't touch that. That's poison ivy. And by the time we got to the end of the trip, I was tired of hearing that that was poison ivy. And so I ripped one of those plants out of the ground, and I rubbed the poison ivy leaves on my face. And I think that's a pretty good picture of how we handle God's limits. I'd like to say that I don't struggle with limits anymore now that I'm an adult. But just as limits help to distinguish between creator and creature, they're also intended for the good, for the blessing, for the benefit of us creatures, whether we understand the reason for the limits or not. They do have a purpose. After all, God created all things, and so it's his right to provide limits. And we can often discern the purpose behind the limit, or sometimes God even tells us what the purpose is. Here's an example for kids and for young Matthew from Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Disobedience is off limits. Obeying and honoring your parents is intended for your prosperity. But even when we can't discern the purpose to a limit, like the danger of poison ivy, we're wise to honor it because in so doing, we're honoring the God who gave us the limit in love. If you're here this morning and you're knowingly pushing past a limit that God has given, I want to tell you, you're playing with fire. My encouragement is for you to, to stop, to turn, to repent from your sin or from just flirting with temptation and turn to the living God who gives us limits and gives them to us for our good. Now, nothing helps a true appreciation of human, lim human limits, quite like an encounter with the living God, which the Israelites have in verse 16. Look with me there. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The people have spent two days preparing and consecrating themselves, and then on the third day, the trumpet blasts, and the Lord descends to the top of Mount Sinai just like he had promised. And like other appearances of God in the Bible, what we call theophanies, There are natural signs to indicate a very supernatural occurrence. There's thunder and lightning and a thick cloud that I suppose you could probably write all off as a coincidental storm that just happened to come on the day that God said he would come. But then we also learn here that the mountain is wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on the mountain in fire. And the mountain trembles greatly. And quite understandably, all the people in the camp tremble. Now, they, didn't clearly, they clearly didn't see this as a coincidence, and they're terrified. Now, I, I remember my very first thunderstorm. I have it in my mind when I first heard thunder clap loudly. And I remember how terrified I was. But what if there had also been fire and smoke and an earthquake at the same time. What must it have been like for Israel to experience this? Well, I think R.C. Sproul captures what they must have felt when he wrote this. The clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we're humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation, you shall be as gods. Now God has already demonstrated his power over the false gods of the Egyptians, and then through ten miraculous plagues, he's freed them from the slavery in Egypt. And then by splitting the sea, he carved a path of escape, and now he intends to establish a covenant with his people. But before he does this, they need to understand who is establishing the covenant and who is receiving it. Who the sovereign creator is and who the servant creature is, creatures are. And this appearance seeks to do that very thing. Now God is no less holy today than when he first appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai. But I wonder, do, do our lives as Christians, the thoughts that we think, the words we speak, the things that we do, do they reflect an awareness of his holiness? Do we take his set-apart nature into account on a day-to-day basis as we move throughout our days? Do we tremble at the thought of being in his awesome presence? A deep abiding sense of our creatureliness and God's holiness really should influence the way that we live, shouldn't it? After all, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. We cannot hide from him or escape his holy gaze. Sure, theophanies like this one convey a special sense of his presence, but God is everywhere. And J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, gave this encouragement to Christians. Do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing you would not like God to read. Give no place where you should not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. 
Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, what are you doing? That's convicting. And the implications of God's holiness extend beyond even how we should live. I think it's helpful for us to note that the prophet Joel, writing a thousand years after the Exodus, he uses the imagery of this very passage to describe the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that future day of judgment promised throughout Scripture. And I want you just to listen to the similarities to our passage in Joel chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So it's not merely God's presence that should cause us to tremble, but the imminence of his righteous judgment. It's coming. Have you taken stock of your creatureliness? Do you understand that one day you will stand before your holy creator in judgment? What might your posture be in his awesome presence? Well, until we understand that there is a profound chasm between us by ourselves and God, we will never see the need for a mediator which we find pictured by Moses starting in verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Now, having led the people of Israel to the base of the mountain, Moses now speaks to the Lord who's descended to the top of Mount Sinai. And the Lord answers Moses in thunder. Recall that one of the purposes for this appearance was that God wanted the people to hear him speaking to Moses so that they would believe in him as a trusted messenger. Because he's about to deliver his holy law through this man and he wanted them to know that it came from him, Yahweh, the one true God. And so he beckons Moses to come up to the mountain for a third time. And we find his words for Moses starting in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, even in this awesome appearance that displays God's holiness, we also see evidence of his amazing grace. He calls Moses up to the mountain simply to remind the people once again not to break through the limits so that they might see God for themselves. What a grace-filled warning. The Lord provides the limits and he provides the penalty for breaking those limits. But he also warns the people of the limits once more so that no one experiences the penalty of death. And so these treks up the mountain would have taken Moses hours, not to mention the trips back down. But this merciful message from God was so important that the Lord calls a special trip. And the Lord instructs Moses to come back down, back up the mountain once again, only this time with his brother Aaron. 
but no one else can come, not even those who are serving as priests. Now, even before he's given his law, the Lord is making clear that his limits apply to his priest too. The priesthood hasn't been established. That's established with the law, but he's making clear even the priests will have limits. We see this later in the deaths of Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu. And we see it yet again in the deaths of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Each of these priests disregard the Lord's limits and act on their own. But the Lord is saying there is no protected class of people who get to do whatever they want and get away with it. Everyone is subject to the holy limits of a holy God. We are creatures and he is creator. Now, we might be tempted to ask, why doesn't God just appear to all the people and just deliver his message to all of them in plain sight instead of being shrouded in clouds of smoke? Or why can't the people just all come up the mountain and hear from him at the top altogether? Why just Moses and then Aaron? Well, one simple answer is that humanity lost its free and unfettered fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. And God is the one who determines the ongoing terms of his relationship with us now as sinners. And he chooses Moses to serve as his prophet, as the mediator of his relationship with Israel. And Moses has been the Lord's go-between all along. And yet in this passage, we have this powerful picture of the separation between God and his people, even his chosen people. And we see the need for a mediator. This mountain is a symbol for our spiritual reality too. We cannot approach God on our terms. He must come to us on his. And in Moses, we find a suitable mediator between a limited people and a holy God. And the good news for us as sinners is that Moses points to an even greater mediator. Referring to this very appearance on Mount Sinai, also called Horeb, Moses offers this promise to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desire to the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. These are the words of the people in our passage next week. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, when John the Baptist begins to minister in the wilderness, the priests and the Levites ask him, is he the long-awaited prophet promised by Moses? But he denies that he is. He's merely preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. He's not the promised prophet of Deuteronomy 18, but he's preparing the way for the one who is, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. In John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus dwelt among us, that he literally tabernacled among us. He was the very image of the invisible God come down to us. And toward the end of of his time on earth, Jesus takes his closest disciples, Peter and James and John, and they go up a mountain to pray. And there he's transfigured in their presence and it's brilliant and it's amazing and it's blinding. And along with him appears none other than Moses and Elijah. Luke describes what happened. A cloud came and overshadowed them and they were very afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. 
Sound familiar? Just as Israel was to listen to Moses who met with the Lord in the cloud, the disciples were to listen to Jesus, this long-awaited prophet, his chosen messenger, his very own son, the second person of the eternal Godhead in living flesh. And when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate two weeks from today, Matthew tells us this. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. Moses was a suitable mediator of God's covenant with Israel. And as we'll see in our conclusion next week, he faithfully delivers God's law, which is comprised of 613 more commands. These were 613 more limits that the people of Israel would struggle to obey. And though Moses was a suitable mediator, he was also limited like you and like me. And the covenant that he mediated was limited. The letter to the Hebrews, especially chapters 8, 9, and 10, remind us that Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. The new covenant that's established in his blood. Moses was a mere shadow of the perfect prophet who was yet to come. And this shadow that Moses provides reveals the theme of this passage. And that theme is that Jesus is the ultimate mediator between a holy God and his limited people. Jesus is the perfect mediator that we need. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never spent much time thinking about God's holiness or the limits that he gives to humanity, or why he gives them, or thinking about the judgment that he promises for breaking those limits. But as we read in Joel 2 earlier, the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment is coming, and it's coming for us all. And as the prophet, Jesus taught frequently about judgment and about hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from God. But Jesus didn't just come to us as a prophet. He also came to us as a high priest who would offer himself as a suitable sacrifice to God. He would offer his body for us, his own life. He's the faithful prophet. He's the perfect priest. And he's the only suitable sacrifice who died in our place. And the author of Hebrews has this to say in chapter 9. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Judgment is coming. Whether you believe that it's coming or not, it's coming. And we can't just luck out of it like I did with Mr. Reese. Jesus has taken God's wrath, our judgment, in our place. And my humble appeal is for you to wait for Jesus' return eagerly and not fearfully, humbly and not pridefully, for he has promised that he will save those found trusting in him, waiting for him. He will be merciful toward our iniquities and he will remember our sins no more.
Now, after getting sent to Mr. Reese's office all those years ago, I was committed never to be sent there again. And thankfully, I wasn't. I never went to a principal's office ever again. But as a Christian, I found that a similar approach to sin to be very ineffective. As I wage war against my old nature, my indwelling sin, I need more than internal resolve. When we simply rely on our own strength, what we end up doing is pressing right past God's limits. When we trust in Christ, we receive a new heart that wants to obey him and his good and righteous limits. And we receive his indwelling spirit who empowers us to obey. He gives us exactly what we need to obey his limits. And he purifies our conscience from dead works so that we might serve him, the living God. And we receive a whole new purpose to live holy lives that are intended for his glory so that we might make much of the one who has saved us by his grace. And we become more dependent on prayer and God's work within our wills instead of our own limited white-knuckling effort. So brothers and sisters, this passage demands our attention. And it provides each one of us an opportunity to do business with God to consider where we might be tempted to cross the line, where we might be flirting with disaster, or where we've altogether disregarded the limits he gives us for our good and for his glory. This passage gives us a chance to repent, to turn from our sin, and to turn to the loving God of grace. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we have no right to come to you on our own. And yet you've sent your son Jesus as the perfect sacrifice in our place. And it's because of Christ and his finished work that we can have confidence to approach your throne, your throne of grace. It's because of Christ's sacrifice that we can draw near to you, our holy God, And so we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we disregard your holiness and disregard your limits that are for our good. Father, we thank you that you've made a way for us to do what is right by the power of your spirit. Thank you, spirit, for indwelling us. Work now. Call us to repentance. And we pray, God, that the salvation that we find in Jesus would lead to lives that are lived for your glory together as a community of faith that we might encourage one another as long as today is today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.